from the traditional territories of the Lekwungen and Wasonic peoples on southern Vancouver Island. I'm Dean Murdoch, and this is Amazing Places. Welcome to another episode of Amazing Places. Today we're going to have a chat about reimagining our streets. Uh, for years they've been places that have been reserved almost exclusively for moving vehicles around and getting us to and from. But there's a movement to reimagine those street spaces, particularly inspired by some changes we've seen during the pandemic. It is a delight and a pleasure for me today to welcome two esteemed guests who are going to join us for a discussion on reimagining our streets. Kevin Kryzik is a professor of environmental design at the University of Colorado, Boulder, and David King is urban planning faculty at Arizona State University. Hi, David and Kevin. How are you both? Doing very well, thanks. Thanks, Dean. Great. Delighted to have you both on the podcast today. You uh, have both done quite a bit of uh, writing and research on the topics of, of streets and, uh, and placemaking on, uh, on our streets. Uh, what's the inspiration? Why did you uh, decide to, to go down this path? I think for both of us, we came to it in sort of a different way. And I'll let Kevin talk about, about his path a bit. I came to this, I was very interested in parking as, a, as something that cities control and cities manage and they don't manage it very well and how parking really pushes everybody to drive more, it incentivizes driving because it makes, it, it makes storing your car very easy and because parking is required just about everywhere, it makes it very cheap and I was interested in that and I've done some work on looking at the amount of space that's devoted to roads and parking. And we, we published some pieces on this and you know, it's about a third of the land area of Phoenix is either streets or parking, which is just an enormous amount of land area. So I started to think about ways that this could be made better. And, you know, and, and then we have these issues of, you know, we have a, an epidemic of traffic safety where in the United States, somewhere around 40,000 people are, are killed each year in traffic crashes. Um, we have issues of climate change, both from the, you know, from combustion engines, but also um, dealing with, with urban resilience and sort of the streets themselves are, you know, they contribute to flooding, they, they contribute to urban heat effects and other things like that. And then looking at, at, at that interest in sort of the physical infrastructure of cities, and then really looking at these new technologies and new services that have come online in the last decade or so, everything from Uber and Lyft and ride hailing to shared scooters and, share, and bike share and e-bikes and all these other new technologies. And, it, and sort of putting all that together will really at, uh, at a point that where we haven't been in a, in a century and that's we have an opportunity to meaningful, meaningfully rebuild our infrastructure and really influence the types of uses that happen on that infrastructure with these new technologies and new, way, new transport modes and ways of getting around. We can preserve accessibility um, and preserve the ways, you know, the opportunities for people to get to the places they want to go without devoting so much street space to, to doing that. And in do and in and by thinking about streets and vehicles as sort of a, a symbiotic 
um, system, we can then think about, you know, what else can we do with streets? Like, you know, do our streets the type of thing, you know, sort of a, this idealized childhood that, that we all think about, you know, where we're playing soccer in the streets, you're playing, you know, baseball in the streets or whatever else, like the streets are where we learn to ride bikes or where we're, we meet our neighbors or where we walk the dog. But, but for too many places, you know, certainly in the United States, and I think this applies to Canada as well, you know, streets are primarily for driving. And if you're, if you, if there's kids playing in the streets, you know, drivers get angry that, that kids are doing that, you know, if a restaurant takes some parking spaces to, to put in some, uh, you know, to put in some tables, you know, we need to think about that as a wonderful opportunity for outdoor dining and take advantage of the sunshine and warm weather, not as, you know, just inconveniencing drivers, because, you know, otherwise we just end up beholden to making driving easier. And, you know, in, in, in sort of, sort of a, a guiding principle that both Kevin and I have, have come around to is as cities focus on making driving easier, one of the real challenges is if you make driving easier, you make all other modes of getting around more difficult. And that's not true for anything else. If you, if you make walking easier or you make biking easier, you make transit easier, you, you know, you make, places better. But if you if we build our cities around cars, it's very hard to do anything other than, you know, continue to support cars. So that's sort of, and that, you know, and I'm not an anti-car, anti-driving person, but, you know, my view is cars should be used like whiskey. Like every now and again, uh, you know, it's okay to have a, have a, have a bit and, and it's okay to indulge periodically, but you don't do it every day. So that's sort of how I ended up uh, studying these things. That is probably one of the best analogies I've heard uh, when it comes to vehicle use. That's, uh, that's terrific. I'm definitely going to be quoting you on that one, David. Uh, Kevin, what about you? What's, uh, what's got you inspired to, to explore this area? Well, when you think about the, um, the, the ability for people to access the goods and services that they want on a daily basis, and what allows those, uh, what, what helps dictate that, that ease by which those services are reached. You know, there's three different kind of um, means, or three different means that, that people are actually able to get to their services. So, so the first is, you know, ordering it on Amazon and having it come to you. The second, which is, you know, information and communication technology. The second is the, the spatial proximity by which uh, the land uses around our cities are set up. And the third is, you know, the mobility options that are provided. Uh, and it's only through the triangulation of those three things that we are able to build really good cities. And what we're seeing uh, increasingly is that, you know, there's a lot of activity on the um, information communication technology front where, you know, there's a lot of home delivery happening these days. There's always been a lot of pressure with respect to how people use uh, land and where the different types of land uses are going to be appropriated in cities. But what we're seeing now is a lot of attention devoted to how that, like David was mentioning, how that street space does or does not allow different forms of mobility to come to fruition. And there's a lot of eyes on that right now. And so when you think about the different options, uh, yeah, for a century, we've been favoring a device that basically requires, when it's stationary, 100 square feet. Um, uh, we have to convert that for Canadians, but, and that's just a lot of space. That's a lot of space in our cities that is devoted to, you know, a relatively inefficient way of getting around, two, pushing two tons, three tons of metal 
uh, around for, for these single trips. And there's a lot of other options that are now being increasingly availed uh, through advances in technology. And so it's a really kind of a precipitous moment for our cities to be able to be reinvented uh, in ways that we can make more efficient use of space, you know, help preserve the environment and possibly actually save some lives while we're at it. So what are the kinds of changes that cities, uh, communities need to be contemplating as we verge on this new era of mobility and we think differently about those street spaces? Um, for a community that, you know, I live in a community called Saanich uh, on Vancouver Island that was largely built out in the 60s and 70s when the car was king and neighborhoods were designed around almost exclusively considering the automobile as the way to get to and from. A lot of goods and services were not designed into close proximity of those neighborhoods, uh, potentially on bike, but probably not uh, close enough to be on foot. So as communities begin to reconcile with these changes in mobility, the, the reality of costs for people to, to maintain and own a vehicle if they continue to do that, what are the kinds of changes communities need to be thinking about that enable us to, to use that space differently? Well, um, I think the, the first thing, so one of the things that, that, that Kevin and I have been working on quite a bit is studying sort of the, the rates of change for, for, for land use and for transport. And one of the things that we have been focused on, the, our, our built environment, sort of the physical structure of cities changes very, very slowly. But streets themselves can actually change quite quickly and they have in the past. That the function, that, that it's only been in the last 50 or 60 years, uh, sort of during this period that you described with the neighborhood where you grew up or, you know, the neighborhood where I live, which was all plotted in the, in the 50s and my house was built in 1970. You know, these are all very auto-oriented, but they're auto-oriented primarily because the streets themselves are auto-oriented. And if we, if, we, if we think about sort of the proximity to destinations that we have, how close, is a grocery store, how close is a coffee shop, how close is a, you know, a barber or whatever else. Turns out that these are actually, for most, certainly for most Americans, these are actually very, very close. That, you know, most, um, most trips made are under four miles. So we actually are, are the proximity is, is, is there, but the issue is that people don't feel safe in something other than a car because we, because we built around the car, they're going too fast, they're too big. You know, if you're walking down a busy street, you know, and traffic is buzzing by, it just doesn't feel safe in our, our sidewalks. You know, we don't put a lot of attention into the, what, what should the sidewalk environment be like to really encourage people to feel safe and, and be safe as, as, they're, as they're walking along. So it's, it's really just thinking about what are all of the opportunities that we could implement soon and quickly. Uh, you know, another frustration that we, that, that we have that sort of motivates our work here is if we think about things, the crises that we have, you know, we have crises of, of climate, we have crises of, of, of safety, you know, certainly uh, in the United States, and I think this is, this is true fairly globally, but we have crises of, uh, you know, of justice as well with, you know, we have a system of mass motorization, which and every time somebody gets behind the wheel and they drive, you're almost certainly breaking the law at some point. And so we have sort of discriminatory practices in policing, um, you know, not 
with any not with any necessarily negative intent, but sort of the outcomes are such. And we know that Black Americans, we know that Latinos are more likely to get pulled over and such. We have all these different crises that are associated with mass motorization. And, and we can change that very quickly. You know, uh, a, a typical, if we're, you know, if we contrast what we're thinking about with sort of what this standard planning idea is like, we're gonna build transit-oriented development, we're gonna build new rail lines, we're gonna build, you know, bus rapid transit, things like that. But these are projects that take a very, very long time. And we're interested in what can we do in the next year, two years, three years, four years to actually affect change on a lot of these things. And one of the things that really encouraged us, you know, during the tragedy of the pandemic was cities embraced streets as a public asset, recognized streets as a public asset and opened them up to all kinds of new opportunities. And coming out of the pandemic as, as we were vaccinated, as we we're healthier and we're, you know, and the economy's growing back, what we're really studying now is what of those practices that we learned over the last year, are we going to be able to carry forward? You know, are we gonna, you know, how important is it for um, parking spaces to be converted into restaurant seating, for instance? And it turns out that, you know, those are actually really popular with diners. They're really popular with restaurants and it changes the dynamic of a street tremendously. And, you know, it's, it, it becomes, you know, these streets that have action on the, you know, on the, at the curb, that's the kind of place that people want to go. They, they see people there, they see stuff happening, they, they gravitate towards it. So, you know, what are the, what are these, these things that we, that we have with our streets that can both allow us to move, make some serious movement towards solving some of these crises that we have and do that in the short term and what over the last year are we able to are we able to pull forward and think you know that's a great idea that we should make permanent yeah i bet you'd be hard pressed dean to find an industry or a sector of the economy that you know hasn't been really shaken by covid and so what we're seeing is that coming out of COVID, you know, it really did allow a control alt delete, if you will, to kind of reset our expectations of uh, the decisions that we've been making in the past. And, you know, we're not going to say that, you know, this is a uniform consensually based uh, um, movement, but I think that based on, you know, David and I's collective um, witnessing of the planning and decision making that has gone on with cities over the past, you know, cumulative 40, 50 years between the, the, the duration that both he and I have been studying these phenomenon, you know, we are seeing some relatively tectonic shifts happening. And what is prompting those tectonic shifts? Well, you know, it's, yes, advances in technology. Yes, it's increasing realization for some of these crises. Uh, but as David mentioned, you know, people kind of started to see their streets and their communities in a different way and what could be uh, solutions, right? So uh, I do think that there is an opportunity for us to just be basically reevaluate all types of decisions and all types of uh, decision-making processes that go along with cities. And, you know, we know that for the past 100 years, the primary beneficiary of those decisions have been the automobile. And so it just kind of provides us an opportunity to just say, oh, is that the right way that we want to go about trying to improve our cities at this point? So how do we hold the line then now that we're, we're into this period where we've repurposed that space and 
how do we make sure that there isn't this dramatic shift back where we say, okay, now we need those parking spaces back because everybody's going to go back to using the car and they're going to want to sit inside the cafe. Yeah, that's a really good question. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, okay, well, this is, you know, these are land grabs, right? Uh, the, the bike advocates got their way here and stuff. And, you know, in the, in, the, in the world of increasing polarization where everybody has their own way of getting around town, uh, yeah, it's going to be a real issue. But I think that what we're seeing here, Dean, is an increased acceptance to experimentation. And as long as we can continue to kind of foster that, uh, there's, there's a lot of movement, a lot of activity on, on Instagram and whatnot, you know, talking about street experiments uh, now in ways that we haven't necessarily seen in, in, in prior decades. And as long as we can con continue to, you know, increase our acceptance for, you know, experimenting with different types of ways of getting around town, I think we're going to increasingly see that you know, the, the problems that uh, congestion and everything else that have, you know, historically plagued transportation systems probably aren't going to be as that big of an issue. So what do some of those benefits look like? What are the, the, the potentials that we're not realizing at the moment as a result of the way that we've kind of been locked into this way of thinking about our streets. Uh, you talked a lot, you know, earlier you talked about kids playing soccer and here it's hockey on the streets. Um, what does that world look like that we're now maybe getting a little taste of through this era of experimentation? Well, I think, um, you know, some of the big things are the streets are going to be safer. That if people feel comfortable walking or biking and they do that more, you're going to see people being more active. They're, 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 they're less likely to get hit by a car. And if they are hit by, by, by a car, it's going to be at a lower speed and they're more likely going to, going to survive. Um, you know, it's, it's no fun to have your leg broken or something like that, but that's a lot better than dying. Um, so, so I think that, I think there's a, a part of that. I think, the recognition that streets are this major asset, as I said, street roads and parking make up, you know, over a third of all the land area in metropolitan Phoenix. Like that's an enormous amount of space that if we think creatively about what that could be, um, you know, that can really transform a city, especially, you know, even a, even a, a region that is known for being as suburban as, as the Phoenix region. You know, and, and so that's a lot of space that can be used. And it's not necessarily that it has to be used for the same thing all the time. One of the, one of the aspects of sort of this auto orientation that exists, you know, on our streets is that we expect that our streets are going to be used for cars 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that does, that simply doesn't need to be the case. You know, it may be, uh, if you, Maybe some of you or some of your listeners are, are, are familiar with the Sequobia, which is, uh, you know, where streets are, are turned into, you know, a promenade, you know, every, every Sunday through the summer or something like that. But there's ways of thinking about streets in, in both temporary and permanent uses that can connect them to the places um, where they are, that the streets are, you know, if it's a third of the space in a neighborhood, you know, that, you know, that's a lot of space that could be used for all kinds of things that that uh, that we don't we don't claim to be you know uh, you know able to see the future on all this we don't claim to be very prescriptive 
on what streets should be used for. But we, what we do think is that we want communities, we want planners, we want engineers, we want policymakers, we want everyone else to think creatively about what that space could be and how that space could, could push forward these community goals that we have um, to make, our, to make our, our neighborhoods better, to make them friendlier, to connect us, to make them safer, to, you know, to make our communities more resilient and everything else. But, you know, so we sort of see our role here as, as doing what we can to flip the argument and sort of flip the understanding that streets are not primarily just for moving cars, but streets are a public asset that should be used for what the public thinks is going to be the best thing for that community. And that's sort of, a, in some ways, we're just sort of making a normative case, but, you know, as good academics, we're building our evidentiary base to support it. But but it is about, you know, there's been a lot of choices made, a lot of decisions made over the last century that have all been oriented around, let's make streets safer for people driving on them. And that has bit by bit made streets less useful for anybody else, less safe for other people and it made our communities less resilient. And that's just one way of thinking about what a street is for. You know, it, we, maybe we measure the quality of streets by you know, the number of hockey games that you can play through the winter, right? Or, you know, or we, we measure it by the neighborliness and the, you know, how many neighbors we know or all kinds of other things. So, so there's just different ways of, of, of optimizing and we need to come up with different ways of measuring what's a successful street and what that means and, and, and how to sell that to the, you know, to the public and to the, the policy. I think one of the revelations, Dean, that we're trying to bring to bear um, basically marries these two or three different thoughts that we've been talking about. Uh, the first is that there is some really advances in technology that are allowing us to kind of see through ways of getting through these kind of short distances in, in, in cities in, in, in ways that, um, you know, uh, people hadn't seen previously, uh, both the public, council, members and, and even those inside industry. And so when you when you consider, you know, the evidentiary base, which is, you know, arguably 60% of all car trips, even in some of the most suburban environments are, are less than eight kilometers. Every time you get in a car, uh, you're going less than six kilometers. 30% of all trips are less than three, three kilometers. You know, there's other ways that we can satisfy those trips, even sometimes carrying cargo with much smaller vehicles. But right now, those smaller vehicles, there really is no, there, there's very minimal um, uh, networks that are available in most communities for users to feel safe. And so when you put these kind of three different pieces together, which are advances in technology, which is the fact that most of our cities are set up to actually be able to accommodate trips of uh, you know, uh, shorter distances, and then the third is what David mentioned earlier is the fact that our streets can actually change somewhat rapidly. Uh, you know, there is an alternative future that we're trying to help people see. And I think that's one of the revelations that uh, is really kind of hopefully coming out of the pandemic here. So what about the folks, uh, you, know, you know, like most parts of the world, we in Greater Victoria have seen a number of changes occur 
um, really over the last decade that, that has reallocated road space for the benefit of cyclists and pedestrians and, and users of, of different forms of mobility that aren't uh, the private automobile. And of course, that's contributed to a considerable blowback from, from the drivers who feel the, the repurposing of that space is an encroachment on their ability to use that space. Uh, and similarly, in, in particularly during this pandemic period, as local governments have considered closures to access uh, for parking uh, and road access to some of the, the major destinations. And in Greater Victoria, a lot of those are, are beachfront. They're places where people want to be able to get their vehicle right up to the front of the line to, to park in order to enjoy those spaces. How do we approach conversations with those folks who are not in a place yet to be thinking differently about how we use those spaces and, and that their way of getting around in the community is based on experience over the last, let's say, 40 years, and they're not prepared to, to contemplate the kinds of changes that are maybe underway for folks who, who don't travel like they do or don't want to enjoy those spaces uh, in the same way that they have by parking directly in front of them and accessing whatever it is they need um, on a short-term basis while the vehicle's stored outside on the street? Well, I think one thing is, you know, most people, you know, most drivers even, once they get someplace, they still want to walk around and they want to be safe. Like, there's, a, there's an enormous demand it, it, certainly in the United States, and I think this is largely true for Canada, there, we just don't build enough walkable neighborhoods. So people will drive really long distances so that they can walk around a neighborhood in safety. So, you know, at, at its core, we, we want the same things. Now, why we, why we, we give drivers um, priority in sort of these public debates is because there's a lot of institutional reasons that support the way roads are designed around driving. All the rules are set up around driving being the dominant use of a road. It's the way we think about roads, it's the way we think about, it's the way we have our road hierarchy set up. Everything is oriented around vehicular travel. And so we, we discount you know, the safety harms that are caused to, bike it, to bikers um, whereas we count, you know, congestion delay that, that accrues to motorists, right? So what we're getting at is that there's a lot that needs to change in sort of the process that, that, that has to happen. And, um, you know, the process with which we think about roads, and, it, and it's not going to be necessarily, a, a, you know, it's going to be hard to convince everybody. Um, it, but uh, we shouldn't prioritize drivers, you know, at the expense of, especially the people who we don't see who are, who can't walk or can't bike or can't take transit because they simply don't feel safe doing it. And these are people, and one of the things that we saw with the pandemic is, is uh, cities reallocated their street space. And we've seen this outside of the pandemic when cities reallocate street space around away from driving, is that that space fills up with, with people living life, having fun, enjoying the city, so on and so forth. And, you know, those, those people have a real claim to want that space as well. But until we, you know, we have a bit of a chicken and egg problem, until we actually 
redesign some of these streets and redesign some of these spaces. Um, you know, we don't have those people to say, well, yeah, we want it this way. We want it, we want to be able to walk around and such. Um, and, and once you once you actually make these changes to, to street space, it almost invariably happens that people wonder why was it ever some other way? You know, as soon as you make these street space changes and you and you open it up for people who are not in a car, it there's light bulbs go off. They're like, this is fantastic. I mean, I lived in uh, New York City when Times Square went from uh, being a road to, um, you know, the transport commissioner, Jeanette Sadakan, led the charge to close it off and pedestrianize Times Square. And, time, and immediately, even New Yorkers who generally would avoid Times Square if they could, like, why did we ever, you know, let the road be open this way? Like, and the businesses surrounding it were, were delighted because foot traffic was up, people are hanging out, and it, it, like the whole idea of what Times Square was sort of changed. And that, that's true just about anywhere you make these changes. Um, but it, you know, it's hard to get people to see that there's a different way to think about street space because we've been doing it for so long. And, engineers come in with their math and their equations and everything else. And it sounds very scientific and it sounds very put together. And what is missing from sort of that engineering approach is those engineering decisions are based on a set of values that were, that were implemented over the course of decades. And we can change those values that we, you know, which will then change what we prioritize and what we optimize on our, on our streets. So, you know, that is not going to convince somebody who wants to park, you know, just in front of their beach bungalow or, or so. But there's a lot more people who would like to be able to enjoy the ocean and enjoy, and enjoy the beach, you know, and they're happy to park in a shared parking lot, you know, a, you know, a few blocks away. Like, go to any boardwalk in the, in the world and, you know, people are not saying we should have parking on the boardwalk. They like the boardwalk being free of cars. They like being able to walk around and see other people. Um, that's the kind of thing that we should be thinking about, not, not just building places for cars. Another quip here, Dean, is that, you know, if you think about the ice cream person selling their goods in the neighborhood, you know, for a century, they've basically been sharing, uh, selling cherry popsicles. And that's the only thing that they've been selling. And so when they start to offer, you know, a variety of different goods, like toasted almonds, people see, oh, wow, okay, there's a different thing that we can actually do here, right? So right now, I think, you know, the majority of the population really has been sold just cherry popsicles, and that's all they know. There's so many other varieties that we're yet to try, and we'll be demanding those uh, soon enough, especially on the, at the boardwalk where we've parked a couple blocks away, or maybe we didn't take the car at all. Parking policy is probably the most important thing that cities could do to help um, change the attitude of drivers. And as I mentioned earlier, we're not opposed to driving and we're not opposed to cars, but we do think that they should not be the organizing principle of our cities. And there's a lot of things that can open up opportunities for making our streets better, having shared parking rather than each business or each you know, building having its own parking lot. Shared parking helps create spaces where people wanna be it's safer to walk, it's more comfortable to walk. Um, you know, and we do encourage um, 
you know, just a lot of innovation. Try a lot of stuff. See what works, see what sells, see what the public likes. You know, like the like the ice cream vendor who's stuck with cherry popsicles and they're trying to figure out what are the other 50 flavors they're gonna try. They're gonna try some good stuff, they're gonna try some bad stuff, and and people will respond. So we're in a we're in an era where we should encourage cities to really experiment and, and to push forward on new ideas. Yeah, Dean, as as urban areas and you know, different places are of course on on the spectrum of what is, you know, an urban area and, and the problems that urban, that face urban uh, metropolitan areas. But, you know, there's three primary challenges that we're, we're facing. The first is the climate challenge, right? A third of all greenhouse gas emissions. And the majority of those are coming from tailpipes of our existing automobile fleet. Okay, so there's one issue. Another issue is the equity and the justice uh, realm. So who is allowed access to our transportation system and who is the beneficiaries, uh, beneficiaries of our transportation systems, primarily those who own automobiles. And then the third is safety, right? As David mentioned, there's an access to 40,000 people, at least in America, who are dying on, uh, on our existing uh, roads. Now, what are the levers that cities can possibly um, pool to remedy or at least alleviate some of those concerns, right? And what we're seeing is that, you know, there's a lot of attention being devoted to the electrification of the automobile fleet. Sure, that in 10 years time, or maybe, you know, 20 years time in two decades, when the entire fleet maybe <laughs> is uh, flipped over, you'll see some noticeable improvements with respect to greenhouse gas emissions. But those are still going to be large devices that are likely still going to be traveling quickly on our existing streets. And we're not saying that all roads need to be uh, rethought. We're just suggesting that a good chunk of uh, the roads, maybe three quarters of all the roads, those local collectors, uh, you know, those small, small arterials. Uh, and we can really kind of reconceptualize what goes on in that space. So again, what are the levers that would help us get to where we need to go? And uh, I think one of the ideas that we see that is gaining traction is if we can just kind of um, shift our mindset to prioritize a much considerably smaller type of vehicle to, to achieve each of those three challenges, we'll, get a, we'll, we'll be, um, you know, being able to uh, do three things with just kind of one chord here. And, and, and I think that that's, that's the challenge for yeah, municipal decision makers to see, for planners to see, for academics to see, is that uh, we do have an opportunity that is kind of being laid out before us. And if we don't seize this opportunity now, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're gonna be looking back, kind of kicking ourselves, we think. Kevin Kreisick is a professor of environmental design at University of Colorado Boulder. David King is urban planning faculty at Arizona State University. I have really enjoyed this discussion. Uh, what a treat to hear these, uh, these ideas, these concepts, um, and some prognostications about uh, where things uh, might be headed and the way that we could give them a helping hand. 
I feel so optimistic about our future based on uh, on what you've had to share with us today. And uh, I'm sure that the listeners uh, will be delighted. They'll be clamoring to have you back, uh, but I imagine you'll probably be off on a, on a book tour by the time uh, I get a chance to check in with you again. Well, thank you for having us. Happy to, happy to, happy to return. Thanks, Dean. Thanks for your time. This has been another episode of Amazing Places. I'm Dean Murdoch. Thanks for listening. Thank you.